We're continuing our sermon series on the eight I am statements of Jesus. So Jesus makes certain statements about himself. And this is more than just a theological teaching, right? So we could make this a really boring sermon get really about what Jesus is saying and why we should believe it. But the important part of every sermon and what I try to do, and I try to do my best, I know we as pastors don't always succeed, is to ask the question, so what? So Jesus says this, so what? What does it mean for us? And so, so much time during the week goes into really asking that question. So the easy part for a preacher is to do the research. It's easy to open up the commentaries. It's easy to look at the Greek and the Hebrew. I mean, it's easy-ish if you have the right, you know, Bible software, <laughs> like all of us do. And so that's the easy part. The easy part is compiling it. The hard part is asking and trying to answer the question, so what? What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? And I hope that when I fail, that those of you, as you're listening to the sermon, that you would continue to ask that question, so what? What does this mean for me? Because the thing is, I was just asked a question this week by someone and the student, is, she's writing a paper. I don't think she's here today. I think I saw her. Um, she's been one of our guests, Malia. She's writing a paper. Um, she's a student at Chapman University. And she's writing a paper about how different genders experience faith. How do they experience God? And so one of the questions that she asks the pastors, because there's three of us that she's uh, interviewing, is, well, what, are, what is your intention when you preach? What is it that you're trying to do? And and I really had to think about that, and I think what we're trying to do when we, when we preach isn't just to give you what the Bible says, because you guys all have the Bible, you, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to ask me and we'll get you a Bible, but you already have the information. And I think that the best way to describe what we're trying to do when we gather here on Saturday mornings is to create space. It's to make room for the Holy Spirit to use the words of Scripture to really shape and to change and to transform us. Because you don't need another guy to yell at you to tell you what the Bible says. You can go online for that. <laughs> but we're creating space. We're making room for the Holy Spirit, free of distraction, in order to be able to speak to us. And so that's what we're trying to do here this morning. So if you will, with me, will you bow your heads and have a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for everything that's happened this morning. We're thankful for the song service. We're thankful for the prayers. We're thankful for the handshakes and the good mornings and the happy Sabbaths. God, we're thankful for Anne and Denai who publicly declared their trust and their faith in you. And so now, Father, we pray that as we take just a few moments to look at a story from the Bible, that you would teach us what it is that each one of us needs to know. Each one of us, Father, is in a different place in our journey. So I pray that you would show each one of us what we need to see this morning. And we pray that you would silence the distractions in our minds and that you would allow us to be present to your spirit now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a red Bible in front of you. And I invite you to open to the book of John. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. John chapter 8. And I, I'll be reading out of the New International Version for most of the 
text this morning. Um, We don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so we're going to be going straight from Scripture. John chapter 8, verse 53. So Jesus makes a claim about himself. Now, the title of this sermon this morning is Why You Feel Overwhelmed. It probably could have been a question is, why do you feel overwhelmed? And I'm going to try to explain what I believe Scripture, why Scripture teaches that sometimes you and I get overwhelmed with life. Because I know that I'm not the only one who's ever been overwhelmed when I've been in a relationship that maybe isn't going the way I was hoping. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that has ever felt overwhelmed with the financial situations that I found myself in, and I'm just not sure how I'm going to get out of it. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's been overwhelmed with schoolwork, with friendship drama, with relationship drama. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has ever experienced feeling overwhelmed. And I believe that what we're going to look at this morning is actually not only going to tell us why we feel overwhelmed, but how we can let go of that feeling of being overwhelmed. And so when we start in John chapter 8, verse 53, some of the religious people were talking to Jesus. See, most of what Jesus teaches or most of why he gets in trouble is because religious people were mad at him. Verse 53 says this. They ask him a question. And first of all, just so you know, what Jesus was teaching, how he was healing people, the religious people thought that Jesus was actually demon-possessed. Okay? So Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God, the religious people of the time who Jesus came to talk to, they all believed that he was possessed by a demon. So right off the bat, Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, people thought that he was a crazy man that was demon-possessed. And so this is where this conversation picks up. And they ask him in verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think that you are? Are you greater than Abraham? Now, that question has just such deep implications for the first century religious people. In the first century, people, or up to the first century and even to today, people of faith would look at Abraham. The Jews of the first century said, Abraham is our father. He was the greatest figure of of their faith. Abraham was the one that God came to thousands of years earlier. And God tells Abraham, if you do everything that I tell you, then I will bless you. God promises Abraham at a very old age that he would give him descendants greater than the sands or more than the stars in the sky and that he would have descendants more than the grains of, of dirt in the sea. And so God makes this promise to Abraham. And so thousands of years later, the religious people of the first century were talking to Jesus and they were saying, Abraham is our father. He is the father of our faith, right? He's the father of, uh, in a sense of, of the Christian faith as well. Right? We all point back to Abraham because that's kind of where the story of faith begins for us. And so the Jewish people are saying, you know, and, th- and there was a very different understanding of how the world worked for them in the first century than for, I guess, for them as they do today. So, so we're not saying anything bad about them. I'm just saying in the first century it was very different. And they said, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham. You are some crazy guy, possessed. You are not greater than Abraham. And so then Jesus says this in verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered them. Before Abraham was born, I am. The Bible, another Bible translation says this, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, 
I am. Jesus, a man from Galilee, from a place that was to the, at the margins of society, there were sayings that people would say that nothing good can come out of Galilee. Right? The king and the ruler, this Jesus was a nobody who was coming from Galilee, and now this man, he says that before Abraham was, he existed. That's revolutionary in the first century. The, the, this verse of the story ends with people picking up stones and wanting to stone Jesus because they had believed that he had just did the one sin that was unforgivable, which was saying that you are just like God. So you can understand why people had a problem with Jesus. Because Jesus was taking the things that were sacred to them and he was challenging them. But see, Jesus wasn't challenging it because he wanted to preach a new message. Or Jesus wasn't trying to be cool, but Jesus was actually trying to show people that the kingdom of heaven was beginning to flourish. And that with Jesus in their lives and with Jesus in our lives, things can be better see, Jesus wasn't just trying to start something new. He was trying to teach people what reality actually was. Jesus was trying to show them that the best way to live was a life that was fully entrusted to God. But by doing that, he was actually challenging the accepted way of how the religious people understood things. Listen, that happens today. Anytime we hear a new idea, are we so... receptive to it or do we kind of shut down and say no that surely must not be right because this is right and this is what has been right my whole life that surely cannot be right you see Jesus is continually teaching us and giving us a deeper understanding of truths that have been true for thousands of years so Jesus says before Abraham I am and so I want you to turn to the book of Exodus so we can get a deeper understanding of what Jesus was trying to say Because you see, Jesus never just says things to say them. So many times when Jesus talks, Exodus chapter 3, so many times when Jesus talks, he's almost, not always, but many times referring back to something that was written in the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He teaches from the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus didn't have the New Testament when Jesus was around. Did you guys know that? Jesus (laughs) had the Old Testament. And even then, it was the the first five books of the Bible that were the most sacred to any religious person in the first century, right? That's what we call the Torah, the law. So you see, whenever Bible writers refer to the law, right, especially in the Old Testament, when David writes about the law in the book of Psalms and and, uh, Solomon sometimes will talk about the law, and even in the New Testament, sometimes when we hear the words of the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Because that's what they had. That's what was their main Bible. And then they had other writings. They had the prophets and the wisdom saints, but they they weren't necessarily on the same playing field as the Torah. All right, so this is what Jesus is referring to, I believe. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now when Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, or or another Bible translation will say beyond the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now let's pause here for just one second. First of all, Moses wasn't the Moses that we know yet. Moses had fled from Egypt. A 
afraid for his life because we remember that he had murdered someone. And so he had finally, he had settled in Midian, right? He found a wife. He started a family. He did all that, I think. I don't know. But he did settle there. And, and what we find is that Moses becomes a shepherd. He is shepherding his flock. And here's what's interesting. He is just going about his daily business. Moses is going to work. How many of us love going to work? Well, I'm, I'm going to redeem work for you right now. <laughs> You'll see. Moses was doing his work. And the Bible tells us that he was going beyond the, the normal area where he would normally take the, the sheep or the flock to graze because they needed, more, they needed more, more food. So he takes them beyond the wilderness. And so what we learn is that he was to uncharted territory. He was doing his job so well, and he wanted to make sure that the flock had enough food that he was going beyond the boundary that he had gone before. Moses was going into uncharted territory. And what the Bible writers were trying to do here by writing the story this way, because they always have a purpose for why they write the way they do. They're trying to prepare you as the reader to think that because Moses was going into uncharted territory, then something is about to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. They're trying to prepare us subconsciously to say something is about to happen. And verse 2 says this. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then God tells him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And we want to pause there for a second. What was so special about this place? Was there a church there where Moses was? Was there an altar there that had been there and he knew that this is where we worship God? There was nothing there. Moses was at work. And it was during Moses being faithful to the work that was given to him, God shows up. God doesn't just show up in holy places, but the truth is, is that whenever God shows up, wherever you are, that place, in a sense, becomes holy. Because any time that you are encountered by God, that is a sacred moment. The, the technical term for this, and, and I, I wish I had put it on PowerPoint, but here's what it's called. It's a theophonic sight. Theo, the Greek word for God, and then phonic, so I don't know what that means, but it's just a theophonic sight, like a place where God shows up. A theophonic sight is a place where you are encountered by God and Moses is having one of these sacred experiences. You know, so we like to think about the bush and the burning bush, but really it doesn't matter why it wasn't burning. It doesn't really matter. That would be to miss the point of what the text is trying to teach us. You see, the symbol of God in the Old Testament was that God shows up in the fire 
over the next, you know, however many 30 or 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, God continually shows his presence by being there in the pillar of fire for the Israelites as they journey through the wilderness. And what's important about this, and I think what you can begin to realize for your life and for my life as well, is that whenever God shows up in your life, it's never just, I I don't think it's necessarily just to pat you on the back and say, all right, keep going. But there are these instances in our lives, okay, maybe they won't happen to you at work, okay? But maybe they're happening to you when you're going to the grocery store. Maybe they're happening with you when you're at home with your family or you're out for a walk. Wherever it is, God shows up wherever. The Bible tells us that the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's what Psalms, I believe, 22 tells us. I can't remember, 26. And if the whole earth is the Lord's, then the whole earth is the house of God. And no matter where you are on this planet, God can be present because this is God's house. God doesn't just show up in this building. Trust me, I believe that something special happens here. I'm a pastor. I give my life to this. So trust me, I believe something powerful happens when we gather. But God is present everywhere. You know, it's funny, God is kind of like moms, okay? And please don't read too much into this, but let me give you a quick sermon illustration um, and to, to kind of get this. I believe God knows everything. God is all-powerful, and God is everywhere. I remember one time when I was in the sixth grade, and I may have shared this story before. I think it was the last day of school, or one of the last days of school. And I went to an elementary school that was, I want to say maybe three or four miles away from, from where I lived, right? So we would get bussed out to these elementary schools because our neighborhood didn't have an elementary school at the time that was set for our district or region. So they would bus all of us kids to different schools in the area. And so I went to, thankfully, one of the, real, the better schools in the city of Fullerton. And I remember my friends said, hey, we're all going to walk home. Or some of them walked home every day, which is, back then I think it was more okay than it is today. <laughs> But we were a bunch of little kids, like sixth graders, and they said, we are going to walk home, walk home with us. And we were planning this, and so I thought, you know, hey, I, as a sixth grader, I kind of felt like I was smart enough to know how not to get, you know, hit by a car or stay on the sidewalks and things like that. And so I asked my mom, and I said, hey, mom, will you please let me walk home from school because all the kids are coming. And she was like, no, it's not safe. And, and I, I actually, she just said no, but I'm assuming it's because she thought it wasn't safe. <laughs> my mom didn't have to give us reasons why she said no. It was just no, and that was it. My sister will remember this story. And so I, I, I said, come on, mom. And so I'm the kind of kid that kept asking and kept asking and kept asking, and my mom would just keep saying no, 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 and no. So finally I said, fine, I won't ask. Now, for those of you that don't know, you know, my parents worked full-time jobs, you know, beyond full-time, right? And so my mom would usually come home like, I want to say like around five or six. School on this particular day that I wanted to walk home got out at like 12 o'clock. So like any of us would think, I have plenty of time to get home if I walk home, right? Right? Even if my mom got out of work at three that day, I could still beat her home because how long would it take? It takes like 10 minutes to drive there. So I decided to come home. I mean, I decided to walk home that day. And it was one of those internal struggles where you know better, but you still do it. And I remember walking home, my sister being the good, the good um, daughter that she was, she took the bus home. I'm pretty sure she was not okay with me walking home either. She's a year older than me, but, you know, I have to carve my own path. So I just said, don't worry, I'll be fine. 
first of all, I can't go into everything that happened, but it was one of those days where it was like, maybe this is why my mom said no. But one of the reasons was there was this long stretch along Harbor Boulevard, and, and if, you, if you've been down there, I know some of, the, some of the golfers in this church do know there's a golf range um, before you get to the golf place that we went to that one time, but there's, there is no sidewalk. There's a park on one side with a fence that goes up to the street, and there's no sidewalk. There's like a little lip of like cement, and on the other side, there's like a hill, and there is no sidewalk. So I realized, okay, this is probably one of the times where this is a really bad idea, David. But I was like, it's okay, we're just gonna, I'm just going to get there as fast, get there as fast as possible. But what I didn't realize is that my friends didn't walk straight home. My friends decided they wanted to stop at a park, and then they decided they wanted to have an acorn fight. What? You know, they thought that was a good idea, and I was like, this is horrible, I just want to get out of here. So I convinced one of my other friends to just keep going with me. I would say we got about halfway home, and out of nowhere, my mom's white, you know, um, Ford LTD Crown Victoria, like a cop car. <laughs> she literally rolled up like a cop. And I was just, like, at that moment, I was like, oh, no, I'm caught. I was so close to getting home. All that to say is that I think that God, he shows up wherever you are, whenever you are. And we can't limit, and God always knows where we are and where we're going. And I believe that God is always trying to show up into your life, but sometimes there are so many distractions in our lives that we are not aware of the presence of God. Jacob, after he wakes up from his dream, you know, Jacob's ladder, he wakes up, and it was just a regular place. It was just the side of the road, and, and Jacob says this after he wakes up from this dream. He says, God was surely in this place. God was here all along. I just wasn't aware. I just wasn't open. My eyes just weren't open to see, and so I believe that we can begin to experience God in our daily life if we just clear some of the distractions away and begin to focus our attention on the presence of how God might show up. Because when God shows up in these theophonic sites, the Bible tells us, and for Moses, it says that God, God, Moses had a theophany, this kind of God moment. And And a theophany is when God is present and you're aware of it, And a theophany is always God is present, and then he calls you to do something. And and what the Bible commentators would say is that God, when he shows up, he kind of makes this declaration of this is who God is, and this is who I will be to you. But we're always presented with a response. How do we respond to God? And, And the commentators would say, you always have a choice, but if you really are experiencing the presence of God, do you really have a choice to respond to God? No, because it's there. It's like, um, it's like falling in love for those of you that have, that have fallen in love. I know people can go in and say that love is a choice, but I'll just say it this way. When you fall in love, when you, when you meet that guy or that girl and you're just like, I am just in love. It's not really a choice. It's, it's your soul responding in the only way it knows how to respond to that other person, and that's to give them love. And so when you are encountered by God, you, you may have a choice to accept whatever God is giving you or not, but really when you're encountered by God, there's only one way to respond, and that's to do as Moses said and say, God, here I am. Send me. Send me where I must go. Tell me what I must do. And so God shows up 
to Moses, and, and we're going to get here in just a couple of seconds um, where we started. But verse 6, God says this to Moses. So he shows up. He tells him, you're in sacred space because God is present. And verse 6 says, and says, God says this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Real quick, let me just give you some context. Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh was the Egyptian emperor. He was the king. Pharaoh believed that he was descended from the gods, so Pharaoh believed that he was a god. Not only did Pharaoh believe that he was a god king, but he also, they also had all of these other gods. They had tons of gods that they would pray to for different things. Moses was a product of being raised in a house like that. Yes, we know that Moses would be the guy that God uses to help be his mouthpiece to lead people out of Egypt. But up to this point in the story, all we know is that Moses had been raised in a house where there was tons of gods. So all of a sudden, when he has this encounter, this is brand new and revolutionary for him. Because gods hadn't spoken to Moses before. Moses had never had these theophonic experiences before. So God comes and God introduces himself to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father Abraham. I am the God of your father Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, his son. And Moses was afraid because he knew that this is the God of the Hebrew people who were slaves in Egypt. You see, Moses had never heard another God talk. And all of a sudden, while Moses is in the middle of his workday doing his job really well, God shows up and he introduces himself as the God of the people that are enslaved in Egypt. And verse 7 says this, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. The imagery that the Bible writers are putting here is, I have come down. In a sense, is, you know, they understood that the world worked in three different tiers. Up, God comes from up. The middle is where we live. And down must be where the evil lives. And so God is saying, I am coming down from out of heaven to the Egyptians to deliver my people. To, verse 8, to bring them out of the land to the good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a biblical way of saying it'll be a land that has everything that you need. To the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. All that, all that, that means is that he was, he was giving different locations. So it's like if God says um, the land of the Canadians, the land of the Americans, the land of the Mexicans. So it's kind of like that. It was just giving them geographic locations. Verse 9. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Here's what's important about this. God hears and sees the cry of his people. Now, I don't know how God intervenes in life, okay? Can I just, as a pastor, I have to tell you that there is no formula that says, well, if you do this, then God will do this. God is not, God is, God's actions are not dependent on us. And what I mean by that is you can't say the prayer the right way and then God will answer you. That's, that's not biblical. But what I do know is that the Bible teaches us that God does intervene and God does interact with his children. How God does that is, is beyond my ability to really explain. Other than 
after a circumstance in my life, I can look back and say, I know that God was there the whole time. So much of our relationship with God is oftentimes is looking back and realizing that God was present. God's hand was guiding. God was leading us. And I believe that the work of faith for you and for me is to not just be able to look back and say God was present, but to actually in the moment be able to realize I know that God is working something good in this moment even though I may not be able to see it. I know that you have gone through situations in your life where it just makes absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely no sense that God would be present there because it's too painful, it's too sorrowful, and you can't see a way out. I know that. I've been there. True work of faith is that in those moments is to say, God, I know that you are doing a good work. I pray that you would make me aware of what that is. Because when you're in the crucible, when you are in the midst of that difficult circumstance, all you can truly do is surrender your will and your heart and your mind to the God who says, I hear the cry of the oppressed, and I hear the cry of my children. Verse 10, we're getting there, it's 12 o'clock. So when, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Jesus. So God says, he invites him, he says, so come. So in a sense, God is giving him the option, but then in the very next phrase he says, I will send you. Verse 11, this is where it gets good. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And that's the question I think that we often ask is, who am I? Moses was no one. Moses was a nobody, and it didn't matter who he was because God answers the question by not even answering the question, but this is what God says in verse 12. I will be with you. Pause. God says, who am I that I am going to go lead all of your people out of the most powerful country in the world. How am I, and who am I that you should send me? And God doesn't answer that. He says, I will be with you. Moses wasn't sent because of who he was. Moses was sent because of who God is. So when God shows up in your life, and he proclaims himself, and however he does that, when God calls you to do something, it isn't because you are the most qualified. And it isn't because you are the best at one thing or another. But it's because God will be with you and God will go with you. And so the question that I want to answer here, and, and if it's okay, I got, can I go like five more minutes? Because I got some stuff I want to share. The reason you and I feel overwhelmed in life I believe that the Bible teaches is because you feel like you have to have all of the answers and all of the wisdom to every circumstance in your life. You feel like you are responsible. Maybe you're the father of, of the family, or maybe you're a single mother and you're trying to raise children, or, or maybe you're just single trying to raise yourself or take care of yourself or whatever the situation is, and you feel like you have to have all of the answers to everything in your life. And not only that, but you have to know how to implement the things that you have to do. And that can be overwhelming. But what we find in the pattern of how God works with people, especially in the story of Moses, is that, listen, God says, I will go with you. Not only will God be with you, but God will give you the wisdom 
and the answers. Now, some of you may be saying, but I've been, you know, I've been, I've been needing this wisdom. And you may be needing some wisdom, but maybe you've been trying it on your own for so long. And I think what baptism shows us, baptism is the symbol and it's the very real action of saying, God, I no longer want to be the captain of my ship, but I want you to be the captain of my life. And I want you to lead me through the good and the bad and all you can do. All right, because I know some of you are doers. Some of you want to be able to do something to be a part of this. I know because I'm like that. All you can tangibly do in your life to help God along this way is to surrender yourself to God and then get out of the way. God is in control. God is like my mom that day when she showed up like a police, right? And she literally, I was about to cross the street and she like, you know, like, scary. Were you, were you in the car? Were you in the car with my mom? No, you were home. My mom knew the whole time. Ugh, ugh. And, and, and she didn't yell at me. She just said, get in the car. And she made my friend get in the car that was with me. <laughs> Took us home. She says, your father will deal with this when he gets home. And you know what? The worst part is my dad didn't hit us. He was just like, I think my dad was like, I don't get the big deal, but I know I have to be a dad and punish you. He didn't say those words. And I think I got my sister in trouble too because she knew and she didn't say anything. Um, so the punishment was dealt equally, and I think we had to, like, rake the leaves for, like, the next three weeks, which is what we had to do anyway. <laughs> My dad was gracious. <laughs> and we couldn't do anything fun for, like, three weeks or something like that. But you see, we, we think that we have, to, we have to have all the answers and all the wisdom and all the know-how. And God's like, why would you do that? Why would you feel that way if you have me? And this is where we're going to sum up as we read the last part of the story that I think is the most powerful part in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? And God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. So Moses had to journey back to the place that he had left. And God was saying, I will get you this far. Just wait and see and you will worship here. Verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them that the God of their ancestors has sent me and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. Remember when Jesus says before Abraham, I am Jesus is using the words of God thousands of years earlier to let the people in the first century know that it is the God of heaven who sends Jesus into the world. And God tells Moses, I am who I am. And you see, well, Moses wasn't really asking them, and we're wrapping up here, okay? Moses wasn't really asking God to give him a name. Moses was asking God, how can the people know that you are who you say you are and that you can actually come through to do something that is impossible? How do they know that you will come through for them if they've waited for hundreds of years and they've heard nothing? How can they have faith in you knowing that you haven't done anything? And God responds by saying, I am who I am. And tell them, I am has sent you. Now, it sounds kind of crazy and kind of weird. 
But what God was saying is this. He was using the verb to be. The verb to be, in a sense, is to exist. And so what God is saying, I am existence. Another way of understanding this is God is saying, I am the creator of all things. If we look at the word, at the word I am, and I'm wrapping this up here, when we look at the word I am, it's the verb is written in the first person, common, call, imperfect. That make, so that should explain it to you, right? <laughs> Here's what it says. The way that this word is written, and we believe that the Bible is inspired by God and the people that wrote the Bible um, wrote it in a language that would make the very most sense to the people. So how the words are written in the original Greek and Hebrew make a world of difference. And here's what it says. It connotes continuing unfinished action, which means that God is saying, I am being that I am being. Or, and this is kind of tricky, God is saying, I am the is, I-S, ising one. The one who always is. So God is not saying it in some abstract philosophical way that he is being present. But what he is saying is that it's not enough to say that God is the God who was or God is the God who will be. But it's the God who is God of the present moment. You see, we can't can't worry about experiencing God in the future. Because we're not there and we have no control over that. And And if we dwell too much on how God has been present to us in our past then it keeps us in some past experience. And one of the things that I write about all the time, and, and I think if you've looked at my, at my website, um, you'll know that so much of what I'm trying to put out is that God can only be experienced in the present because you are only alive in this present moment. It's not that God won't be there in the future, but according to God, God is the one who is in the present moment waiting to interact with you. Because it's in the present moment that you have these God experiences and these God encounters where God shows up to you in that technical term of theophany. Because that's where God wants to meet with you. Because we can't say, okay, well, next Saturday when we go to church on Sabbath, we're going to have a God encounter. Hopefully you will. But it's not enough for us to say that we're going to wait seven days for God to encounter us, but rather we must be open to the presence of God in the very present moment of our lives. Now, I know you can't read the Bible all day long and you can't pray all day long, but it's about asking God to give you eyes to see God's presence everywhere you go, even at work. Because most of you spend eight hours a day at work and you sleep for another eight hours, which means you only have like eight hours left to do other stuff. Run errands, feed kids, go to the gym, do whatever it is. So perhaps the prayer this morning is that you would ask God to teach you to see him in the present moment, even at work.